Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Infidelity is hardly a new phenomenon. It's existed for as long as people have united, as couples, married or otherwise. MFTs report that affairs can happen even in happy relationships, as well as troubled ones. Recent national surveys indicate that 15% of married women and up to a quarter, that's 25% of married men, have had extramarital affairs. This incident rate is about 20% higher when emotional and sexual relationships without intercourse are included. As more women began working outside the home, their chances of having an affair have increased accordingly. The good news is, depending on what caused one partner to wander and how determined a couple is to remain together, infidelity doesn't have to result in divorce or the ending of relationships. In fact, as MFTs, we play a powerful role in healing these broken bonds and rebuilding trust. Today, no better person to talk about than healing from infidelity and forgiveness than Janice Abram Spring, clinical psychologist and nationally acclaimed experts on issues of trust, intimacy, and forgiveness. Her book, now in its third edition, After the Affair, Healing the Pain and Rebuilding Trust When a Partner Has Been Unfaithful, has sold more than 600,000 copies. The new edition has an afterword in which Janice answers clients' troubling yet often provocative questions regarding the affair recovery process. She's also the author of the award-winning How Can I Forgive You? The Courage to Forgive and the Freedom Not To. She's been in practice for over 40 years in Westport, Connecticut. She has won the Connecticut Psychological Association's Award for Distinguished Contribution to the Practice of Psychology. She originally trained at UPenn with the famous originator of CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Aaron Beck, and she served as a supervisor in the Department of Psychology at Yale University. You can find out everything you want to know about Janice at JaniceAspring.com. I'll be back after the interview. Eli, back with you. So happy to be joined by Janice Abram Spring, author of After the Affair. We're going to talk a lot about working with affair couples. Janice has been doing this for over four decades and is really a national authority and international authority on working with couples. Janice, the first question is always, how did you get interested generally in working with couples, but specifically in fidelity? Well, Eli, thank you for doing this interview with me. There's a personal story, and I could spend an hour talking about that, so I won't do that. But often there is a personal story that directs us into an interest. And my story takes place when I was 18 years old, so we're talking 1968, and I got married. And I can't believe my parents actually allowed me to get married so young, but... Anyway, what happened is my husband and I went on to have two children, and I hired a young girl 
to help care for them. Uh, at the time, I was training with Aaron Beck at the Center for Cognitive Therapy. This was so many years ago. This was before he had written his seminal book on cognitive therapy of depression. He was writing it at the time. And I would fly to Philadelphia once a week to study with him. And I hired this young girl to take care of the kids. And going to, you know, down the road, I learned that my husband was having an affair with her and the marriage ended. I went on to write this book, uh, After the Affair, Healing the Pain and Rebuilding Trust When a Partner Has Been Unfaithful. Most of us as therapists, we have a personal story of why we do what we do. So this really hit home at a very early age when you were going through your training. There was no books like this written at the time. How did you get through your own trauma? Well, you know, the story goes on. And at one point she called and they got married and she called and asked if she could apologize to me. And we set up a time when she was going to call And this was, of course, before cell phones, so I came home from my office. I'm sitting by the phone waiting for her to call, and she never called. And it was that set me on the path to write my second book, How Can I Forgive You the Courage to Forgive the Freedom Not To. And in that, I developed a healthy model for not forgiving, read a radical model, when the person who hurts you isn't sorry and isn't available to make meaningful amends. Forgiveness is reserved for the person who has the courage and character to make good. Let's, for our listeners, start by getting a baseline definition of infidelity. Because one of the things about working with couples that is challenging, sometimes partners define it differently, therapists define it differently. So to ground us, how do you define infidelity? So it's very important that partners discuss what's kosher and what's not, and to come up with a definition that they agree on. I mean, the truth is that most people know when they're violating their partner that they're doing that. That's why they keep it a secret. If they thought it was fine, they would tell their partner. But obviously, there's a lot of cover-up because they know it violates and it would destroy the relationship. So my definition of affairs is that affairs are broadly about secrets and the violation of trust. So in general, I say, as a kind of easy working definition, if your partner were in the room looking over your shoulder, watching you, feeling very uncomfortable with what you're doing, you should know you're doing something wrong. You should know that you're doing something that violates them. So the idea here is you alone don't come up with a definition of what's an affair or what's allowed in the relationship always see it through your partner's eyes. How would they feel? I think that is uh, good wisdom, the the nature of secret. If it wasn't secret, and I always tell uh, couples and my students, if you could do the same activity with your partner there, with this other person and feel okay about it, you're probably in a good spot. If you feel like you couldn't, that is a slippery slope. So That's what it is. What do you think, because many couples will present almost like we've moved in the field to this drama model, depending when you see them, it could be, you could be like a first responder as a couples therapist to a trauma, especially for the injured partner. And for the participating affair partner, it, it feels different. But I am curious what you think over your four decades of doing this work, what do you think are the necessary conditions for a couple to be good candidates 
for repairing a rupture in a relationship like this? Well, one is you have to have realistic expectations. You know, if the unfaithful partner thinks they're going to say, I'm sorry, and it's going to be over, it's not going to work. So realistically, I've found that it takes about a year and a half from the time when the hurt partner has discovered the affair, the unfaithful partner has had a formal ending in no uncertain terms, and the couple is working on rebuilding the relationship. I would say from that point, think a year and a half of working to rebuild trust and connection and address the injury. And during that time, I think it's important for couples therapists to prepare the couple that it's going to be a roller coaster ride up and down, and there will definitely be times when they'll feel it's hopeless and that too much damage has occurred and they can't possibly rebuild. And I tell them that, that the couples who succeed hang on, and it's kind of like walking through a black cloud. You don't know where you're going, but you just keep walking. You keep doing the work until the sky clears. But they have to have realistic expectations about what it's going to require those couples who recover from affairs, what they go through in order to rebuild the relationship. Let's assume all contact with that third party has stopped and the couple is committed to trying to rebuild trust. Let's talk about how to do that. You know, I say trust is not built on verbal reassurances. Trust is built on concrete behaviors. I have couples spell out, basically, what concrete behaviors matter to them that help build trust. And in the book, there's, there are lists of sample behaviors, both in the flesh and, and in cyberspace, types of trust-building behaviors. So, you know, it could be, in the past, it may have been, I don't want you traveling. You used to meet this person when you travel on your business trips. You'd meet them in San Francisco. You'd meet them at the hotel. And I can't trust you at this point traveling. I don't want you to travel. It could be, you know, if I call you on your phone, pick up. Even if it's to tell me you can't talk or get back to me just for a minute. When I call you and you don't answer and you disappear for two, three hours, you know, of course, where does my mind go? So I I need you to be responsive to me. You know, it could be something like, talk to me about your negative feelings. I don't want you talking to her about your negative feelings. Talk to me if I've done something that bothers you, uh, where you don't feel loved or you don't feel respected or you feel cut off in some way. Talk to me, talk to me, give me a chance to make good. So these are concrete behavior lists that I have partners make. Uh, How, you know, what could your partner do that would help you to trust them? And certainly, yes, I agree, both partners are injured, but the partner that has been cheated on, they obviously have a sense of what kind of restores homeostasis or trust. What if the participating partner is unwilling to give their partner these things. To me, that's an indicator, again, on their wanting to move forward and willingness. So sometimes these things, concrete operationalized behaviors to regain trust are outlined, but the participating partner is hesitant. Well, I don't want you to see my phone. Uh, Why do you need to put a GPS on me? If they are unwilling, how do you handle that? Well, I'd probably see them in an individual session to try to hear their resistance, to unpack the resistance, 
and to try to address specifically what what it is. It may just be, you know, partly they're not educated that this is the way trust is rebuilt. It's not through verbal reassurances. Trust me, honey, I'll never do it again. It's hurt partners check. They check the GPS. They check because the truth is that the unfaithful partner has taught them, do not trust my word because I will lie to you and I will deceive you and I will violate you. So the unfaithful partner has taught the hurt partner not to trust. So is the way trust is built through these concrete efforts. Now, hurt partners don't want to spend a lifetime checking. It's not much fun. And once the trust is restored, they're happy to give up those behaviors. But I think part of it is for unfaithful partners to have a realistic gauge of how the hurt partner will heal and the hard work they're going to need to do in order to earn the trust. And they may not be willing to do it. Maybe they're insulted. Maybe they feel controlled. These are things that they can talk out with the therapist and perhaps get some education around. I agree with you when you said that this is not a part of the cell to the couple. Is This is not a permanent checking behavior. This is to reestablish trust, to restore continuity. It is not you're going to be doing this for your rest of your life. Sometimes the hurt partner wants to make contact with that third party. And even if the therapist says, no, put the boundary around it, don't do that. They have questions they want answered. So let's talk about how you would help somebody that wanted to get answers. And some people want to know a lot, very micro details of what happened. How many times did you do this with him and her? What did you think about this? Other times they don't want to know to that level. So how do we deal with getting your questions answered and hopefully preventing that hurt partner from reaching out to the third party? Sometimes the hurt partner doesn't trust what the unfaithful partner is telling them, and they want to make contact with the affair person. And in fact, this is one of the examples in the new third edition of After the Affair, that this woman went on her, the hurt partner went on the husband's cell phone, got the email address of the affair person, and wrote to her on the phone pretending to be the husband, setting up a meeting because she wanted to ask her questions. And so the affair person turns up at the bar and is confronted with the wife, not the husband, with whom she had the affair. And the wife said, you know, I'm not here to hurt you, but I have some questions. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to let me buy you a drink and you could perhaps help me with my marriage. Well, this, of course, is very strange that the new therapist is now the affair person because she felt the affair person would give her the truth in the way that the husband wouldn't. And it was a very interesting meeting because what happened in that meeting, of course, it's not always what happens. It could really be a disaster. But what happened in the meeting is the affair person was honest with her and caring and said, obviously, there'd be no reason for me to tell you this if it weren't the truth. What I'm going to tell you is this. Your husband loves you. He loves you more than he loves me. But he hasn't been happy in your marriage. And he feels that at times you just treat him like a paycheck. And 
You don't want to be intimate with him. You don't really care about his feelings. Sometimes you talk to him in a way that makes him feel terrible. You know, the kids and the dog and everybody else comes first and he feels invisible to you and he's hurting. He loves you. He wants to be married to you. You two get into couples therapy and save this marriage. You've got a good family. You've got a good marriage and these things can be corrected. And listen to me. I am no threat to you. I am no threat to you. You work on your marriage. Well, it was very interesting because that person helped her in a way that no couples therapist or her husband could because there'd be no reason that this person would say those things if they weren't true. That's a powerful story, and certainly uh, if it could work out that way, great. But as you said, I think that's probably the exception to the rule. So let's say we have the partners together and the injured, hurt partner wants these questions answered. How do you do that in a structured way that gives both people what they want? It gives the participating partner a way to move forward and not keep coming back to the same questions over and over. And it gets the hurt partner what they want, which is the truth, in order to kind of move forward and know what really happened. How do you help them have a structured conversation? Well, I think, Eli, that's exactly right, that it's better if it is a structured conversation. And so I would meet with the hurt partner, quote unquote, whoever that is of that day, and we would construct a list of questions. What is it you want to know? Now, there are some things, do you really want to know that? You know, sometimes hurt partners just want to make the unfaithful partner squirm. Tell me about her breasts. Tell me how her breasts are different than my breasts. And, Tell me about everything you did with her sexually that you've never done with me. And I mean, sometimes the questions are meant to punish and to humiliate or to just make the other person squirm. Sometimes they really want to know the answers. So I say, as much as possible, ask about the two of you. Forget the affair person. Uh, keep the questions to what is it you want to know about that, that pertains to the two of you. And so we make a list of questions. What is it you want to know? We try to make a good list. And then the couple will come in and the unfaithful partner knows. Maybe he gets the list in advance. And he knows that the hurt partner is going to ask a question. And he's going to answer the question with full transparency. And we're going to manage it in the couple session when they can do it in the room with a third party and start that dialogue and they have a structure that works, then maybe they can generalize that to further discussions at home. Because it's rarely, in my experience of 20 years of doing this work, that you can uh, have all of that in one conversation. It's a series of conversations. So, and I, that's why I think your timeline of even in the best scenarios, taking a year and a half to rebuild is very important to educate people on very quickly because the participating partner always has a different timeline than the injured partner. Even if the injured partner is a person capable of forgiveness, it, it still takes time. And often we see with couples as well, even if the that participating partner is doing everything that you and I have talked about, about rebuilding trust. There are temporal triggers. You can't turn the news on without hearing somebody cheating on somebody. So there are things that re-injure and traumatize that hurt partner that sometimes are out of our control. So how do you work with couples around that as far as these triggers that 
that happen. Like, oh, it's, you know, it's the holidays. This time last year, you were doing this with so-and-so. And again, it re-injures both people and it feels like uh, it slows the progress. How do you deal with these triggers? Well, yes, there are triggers. And that's because the mind has a memory. Thank God we have our minds. And so we have association. You're going to remember the trauma and you're going to be pricked and the wound is going to be reopened. So that's exactly how it works and that's the way it should work. What we want to do is try to help couples manage the memory, the association better. And so I say, you know, when the hurt party is alone with her pain, nothing good happens. And so the unfaithful partner has to realize that they're going to, the hurt partner may reach out with a memory, uh, with, with an opened wound. And they're going to need that uh, unfaithful partner to reach out. They're going to need to feel that that person cares about the harm that they, they've caused them. You know, sometimes people have discussions and, you know, we use all our communication training to talk out the, the hurt. Sometimes people get to a point, let's say now, it's a year and a half, and I think they need to begin to shift to less um, discussions and just more connection around whatever that wound is. And so I have, uh, in the How Can I Forgive You book, I have something which I call the transfer of vigilance. And what that means is that when something gets pricked, a memory gets pricked, that the, uh, the offender steps forward and acknowledges it so that the hurt party isn't dealing with it alone. So an example might be this couple goes out to dinner. He had had an affair. He ended the affair when his wife found out about it. Now it's a year later, and he takes her out for an anniversary dinner, a wedding anniversary dinner. He had had an affair with a woman, let's say her name was Sarah. And they go out to dinner, it's a lovely place, and they order some wine, and then the waitress come over and says, hello, I am your server tonight, my name is Sarah. I'll be back to take your order. Obviously he realized the wound was gonna be reopened for his wife, and he reached across the table and he said, I am so sorry, this is happening. How are you doing? And she looked at him and she said, better. What you did helps me. You just made it better. Yeah, that is a good story in the sense that when we psychoeducate these couples, as you were saying, these pricks, these triggers are bound to happen. And instead of the participating partner getting defensive or saying, oh, that was a year ago, can't you just get over it to validate instead of invalidate that injured partner's reality. And that story uh, is a good example of what we were saying a couple minutes ago, that even if that person trying to rebuild trust is doing everything right, things like this happen. They're seeing it through their partner's eyes. They're, you know, it's in the forefront of their minds. And that's when the hurt party feels cared for. They don't feel alone. They don't feel they're carrying weight by themselves alone. It would seem another protective factor is if the couple agrees who they are going to talk to about the affair and who they're not. I'll give you an example. If in the, the height of the discovery and finding out, the injured partner goes out and tells their whole family all their network about this event, it is sometimes hard for them to look 
these outside network of supporters to look at the marriage or the relationship or that cheating partner the same way again. So obviously having someone to talk to, a supportive therapist, a good friend is important, but but the boundary about who you tell and how you publicize this is very important. How do you talk to couples about that? You know, I think that sometimes when the affair is first revealed, the hurt partner may want to tell a lot of people. They don't want to be alone with their pain. Uh, They want their kids to know because they want to know what a creep the other parent is. They may want their friends to know. They may want their parents to know. They don't want to be alone with their pain. And um, I think therapists can help patients walk through this, not to just uh, act on the first instinct. Because down the road, when everybody knows it sometimes makes it more difficult to heal. And they can always decide who they want to tell. But you want to help them make thoughtful, not impulsive decisions, who they're going to tell and how it's going to feel to have that person know and what is it you want them to know. And sometimes people combine into one decision, the idea to forgive and then to stay in the relationship. Those are two separate decisions. But as you were mentioning early in your very personal story, forgiveness helps it helps both the couple and it helps that injured partner it is really powerful let's talk about how to help a couple earn forgiveness what i've done is i've gone on to develop two healthy responses to an interpersonal injury like an affair could be an affair but it we're talking about any relationship injury between any two people what i did is i went on to develop instead of two models, forgiving and not forgiving, I've developed four models, two healthy and two unhealthy. The two unhealthy are called cheap forgiveness. Cheap forgiveness is kind of kiss and make up. You know, I don't need anything from you. I don't, we don't need to learn anything. I forgive you, period, which resolves nothing. Refusing to forgive is there's nothing you will ever do to allow me to forgive you. I will hate you the rest of my life. And, and that kind of, you know, misery and just simmering in your in hostile juices is not healthy. So those I consider dysfunctional responses to interpersonal wounds, not just infidelity, any interpersonal wound. And then I went on to develop not one, but two models for healing One I call acceptance, and the other I call genuine forgiveness. And there are 10 steps, which I won't go into here in the interview, that help accomplish these these responses. The difference between acceptance and genuine forgiveness is both tiny and huge. With acceptance, you do the steps yourself. With genuine forgiveness, you can only do it with the person who has hurt you. It is a transaction, and therefore it is much more healing, unfortunately, than anything you can do on your own. But sometimes we don't have the partner to help us heal. Maybe they've gone off with the affair person. Maybe they're not sorry. Maybe they tell a different story, and they're not available to make amends, and you are left to try to heal yourself. And there, there are powerful things you can do to heal yourself, even when the person who has hurt you, the unfaithful partner, 
is not sorry. So it would seem like what we were saying earlier, if you were working with the couple and the person was capable of forgiveness, the person was cheated on, and the participating partner was generally sorry, you could work toward this forgiveness. If you're working with an individual, it would where the either person is not sorry or they've exited the relationship, it seems like you're working on an acceptance. So in your own, we'll kind of come full circle here, in your own personal journey that you told us about at the beginning, it seems like you were working on acceptance because you did not have the buy-in from your ex or from the third party. So how did you, without going over all 10 steps, give us some tips of how to walk someone through that journey because this is not something also that happens overnight this can be a long journey and the person needs time to get there yeah so with forgiveness because i distinguish it from acceptance it has to be said that way with genuine forgiveness one of the steps is that the offender is willing to listen to your pain with an open heart. When you go to somebody and you say, you've hurt me, and they say, well, it doesn't take much to hurt you, or, oh my God, are you going to get into this again? I can't stand it. There's no forgiveness. Now, you can, again, it's very important to have these two different responses. You can heal yourself. You know, you can free yourself from your pain, but that doesn't mean you forgive the person. And so the forgiveness must be earned. And part of earning forgiveness is that person has to care about the pain they've caused you and be willing to hear your pain and respond to your questions and to show that they, they care about you and they're willing to build trust and uh, earn your forgiveness and make you feel valued as a human being. Acceptance are steps that you take yourself to free yourself from the preoccupation, from the anger and the bitterness and the devaluation of the person who has hurt you. But you're not forgiving them. Forgiveness is reserved for the offender who has the courage and character to make good, to acknowledge their contribution, to demonstrate that they understand how they've hurt you, to make do the steps that helps rebuild trust and make you feel cared for and valued as a human being. Yeah, and the way you're framing it, uh... Forgiveness is dyadic or maybe even triadic if you're forgiving the affair partner and acceptance is something you do individually. And depending on your modality, if you're dealing with the individual or the couple, it changes things. Now, this idea of you can have a successful, it used to be seen in the field of couple therapy that if you could not save the relationship, that was an unsuccessful outcome. I mean, we don't feel that way as a field anymore. You could go through these steps. You could even attain forgiveness, but decide not to stay in the relationship, whether a committed relationship or a marriage. Talk about that. Talk about the decision after the healing and the work has been done, the decision to reconcile versus to split up. I'll give the example of this couple where the husband had had an affair. They have children together. And when the wife found out about the affair, she said, I'm done. I'm getting a divorce. And um, the husband was very sorry and he had abused alcohol and he said look we're going to be tied together these kids we love so much and i am really sorry and i've done a lot of things wrong and would you get into couples therapy with me and um, i'd like to earn your trust and your forgiveness and she thought about it she came in for an individual session we talked about it 
And she said, I will do this work, but do not push me to stay with this man. I have hired an attorney. I am getting a divorce. I want a good settlement. I want to be out of this marriage. And that was the agreement. They were going to do couples therapy and get divorced. And they were going to go on because they shared these kids. And he was going to do the work to earn her, her trust and her forgiveness so that they could co-parent these kids and be good partners as parents to these children. And also, he wanted to make amends to this woman he loved, even though they weren't going to be married anymore. We are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm curious your experience of how do you think that has affected the topic of what we're talking about today? My practice has gotten very busy. So I guess, you know, after 43 years in practice, I'm revealing my age here, 43 years in practice, my practice is very busy, I think, because of the pandemic. It's incredibly hard being a couple today. It's incredibly hard. People are worried about their assets. People are trying to manage their children with their jobs. People are bored. It's easy to turn on each other. There is less meaningful diversion, although it doesn't have to be. You know, everything's online today. But um, I think that it's a hard time for couples and families. It's a very hard time, especially with the kids being home. And you're also supposed to somehow manage their education while you're working and doing your job and everything else. Uh, so I think it's easy to get pricked and to turn on each other and to feel quite miserable. Yeah, I'm also seeing in my practice a lot of people because they're feeling disconnected from the world. Maybe they're wait, working at home. So they are making these virtual connections. And sometimes that can lead to crossing a boundary like we've talked about today too. So I'm, I'm seeing a spike in more of these online type of breaches of trust. And I'm, you know, we could do a whole nother show on that. And then clearly the same feelings, emotions are involved when you have a virtual affair uh, versus a face-to-face -face affair. I wonder if you believe that same thing or do you treat them any differently? Well, virtual affairs and affairs, you know, both are fantasy. Staying at home and dealing with the kids and dealing with finances and dealing with, you know, all the strains of daily living is something else. So I think it is easy to form an attachment online and a virtual affair. You don't have to deal with any, you know, any, any of the challenges. You know, I say that even with affairs, you know, nothing's going to compete with the fantasy of the affair person, not the marriage partner and not the affair partner. Neither one is going to compete with the fantasy of the affair partner uh, because nothing has to really be negotiated or resolved with the fantasy. And that's often what happens in affairs. It's, it's fantasy. Yes, it, it's not real life. And that's why many people that end up with their affair partner, once they extricate themselves from marriage, it doesn't work out like they planned. I, I agree. So, I mean, you have done so much for this work in the last 40 years. If a therapist is listening to this and they're like, wow, I really want to work with couples, but this seems sitting with people in their pain and being part of this, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. What is the most rewarding part about doing this work and helping couples repair from 
infidelity and breaches of trust. I think that, you know, we're all on a, a learning adventure here in life. And, you know, people can do hurtful things and stupid things and thoughtless things and, you know, but human beings are capable of confronting their own issues and learning to be a better partner. Sometimes being a better partner means learning to speak your truth, perhaps in a way that you weren't allowed as a child, overcoming, transcending those childhood patterns and the patterns you've brought into the marriage, uh, and going on to have a second marriage, a new marriage, to the same person. Janice, thank you so much for sharing your very personal story and your wisdom or doing this work for the last 40 years. If our listeners would like to correspond with you, the third edition of After the Affair is out now. It's sold over 600,000 copies. Tell our listeners how they might correspond with you. Well, okay, thanks, Eli. Um, so my website is www.janisaspring.com, J-A-N-I-S-A-Spring.com. So everything you need to know is, is on my website. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast where we seek to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. If you're jonesing for more on how to help couples recover from affairs and you've picked up Janice's book, you can also check out your home for couple and family therapy. That's the AAMFT, aamft.org. You're going to go to the main page under Enhanced Knowledge. There you'll see Online Education and Training, which is the home to Tenio. That's AMFT's online education system, on-demand, continuing education, when you want it, and what you want to be informed about. So if what you want to be informed about is more on infidelity, please check on there. There's two offerings by husband and wife team, and my colleague and longtime close personal friend, Adrian Blow, and his wife, Tina Tim, of Michigan State University, where they're talking about integrative treatment of infidelity and also secure attachment and mindfulness in a fair recovery. So you can check out two offerings there on Tenio. If you're marketing your services, AMFT has a series of helpful pamphlets, a hard copy version. One of these therapy topics is infidelity, and they're written for clients and potential clients. Uh, the therapy topic series are designed to educate consumers and help you market your services. The brochures contain easy-to-understand information, no jargon or psychobabble there, and resources. They discuss the role of MFTs uh, in treating problems affecting our populations, and certainly one of those problems is infidelity. Each packet contains 25 brochures, and obviously if you're a member, you can save on those, and you can find out everything you need to know about that on aamft.org. I appreciate you dropping me a line. I'm at info at elikaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. That's where we get ideas for shows like this, whether we're doing a deep dive into a topic affecting couple and family therapists like Infidelity or we're interviewing one of the pioneers in the field. You drive our content and I love hearing from you. Check out back installments of the podcast wherever you download your favorite podcast. Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. I'm 
Partial to Apple Podcasts. And as always, I really appreciate a review and star rating. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.